If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode... We're revisiting the Paris Peace Conference of 1919-20, where the victors of the First World War sought to resolve the aftermath of one of the most destructive conflicts in human history. Was the resulting Treaty of Versailles too harsh on Germany? Did the peacemakers create lasting problems in the Middle East? And what effect did the Spanish flu have on proceedings? Our expert for today is LSE Professor David Stevenson, who's written numerous books on the First World War. He was joined in conversation by BBC History Magazine editor Rob Attar. As always with this format, we're combining questions that you've submitted via social media with popular internet search queries. David, I wonder if first of all we could just clarify the terminology here, because I think some people tend to confuse the Paris Peace Conference and the Treaty of Versailles, but they're not exactly the same thing, are they? No, the Paris Peace Conference is the general name given for the peace conference that drew up the peace treaties at the end of the First World War in 1919 to 1920. And it's called the Paris Peace Conference, obviously, because the meetings were in Paris. Um, Most of them are actually at the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which is at the Quai d'Orsay in central Paris. Um, It produced a series of peace treaties, not just with Germany, but also with Germany's former allies, the so-called Central Powers, Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria and Turkey. 
And those treaties were signed outside Paris. The first one to be signed was the Treaty with Germany, which is signed at the Palace of Versailles on the 28th of June 1919. And the subsequent treaties were signed at other palaces on the southern and western approaches to Paris, at Neuilly, Trianon, and to two other Saint-Germain-Sèvres. You're right to make this distinction. It's the Paris Peace Conference, among whose products and whose first major product is is the Treaty with Germany, which is the treaty signed at Versailles, so usually known as the Treaty of Versailles. But it then produces four more peace treaties with Germany's former partners before the peace conference came to an end. And then one question that we had that came in from uh, Lau Alice on Instagram, why was Paris chosen as the location for this conference? Uh, The French government pushed for it. And there was a controversy about this because I think the British Prime Minister, Lloyd David Lloyd George, and the probably the American President, Woodrow Wilson, would, would have preferred a neutral location. Gen- Geneva was the other place that was particularly in the running. Um, in the end, they gave way largely because of pressure from the French side. They, they, were, they had reasons for wanting to get on with the French Premier, Georges Clemenceau, and to work with the French government. That was going to be vital if the peace settlement was going to be put together constructively. Um, and making the concession of meeting at Paris um, was something which, if you like, was a symbolic concession rather than a concession of substance. Um, so that, that's, de- that's decided at the end of 1918, and uh, Paris is, is where it happens, even though from the point of view of the British delegation in particular, they were nervous that there would be a strong nationalist and revenge mentality among the Paris public opinion, and that, that, that might weigh on the proceedings of the conference in a way that was undesirable. Now, I'm just combining one of the popular search queries and also a question from World War II military weapons on Instagram. Who was at the Paris Peace Conference and were any countries excluded? The people who were there were basically delegations from the countries that had been at war. So first of all, obviously, the Allied powers and the associated powers. If you read the documents of the time, they talk about the victorious countries as being the Allied and associated powers. The associated powers means the USA. I can go into that if you want, but technically the United States was never an ally, but it was. It obviously fought alongside the British and French and the others. So that, that's the first thing, the delegations representing the countries that have been on the victorious side, including ones that we don't normally think about, such as Brazil, for example. Uh, on the other hand, the delegations representing the central powers, the defeated side, though they are brought into the conference proceedings late in May and are not treated as, as equal negotiating partners. Um, not represented to the neutrals, of course, in Europe um, and outside Europe. Um, and more particularly, the, the, the outstanding country that's not represented is Soviet Russia. We'll probably come on more onto that later on, but uh, that, that's a key contrast with the uh, Congress of Vienna back in 1814-1815, when Russia had been a major participant. In 1919-20, the Russians were not at the table. So even though uh, the First World War had technically ended in an armistice, the Germany, the central powers are very much being treated as defeated powers at the conference. Sure. Um, the armistice is important because from the American viewpoint, the armistice had been a kind of contract. Um, and the Americans use this terminology, the armistice contract, the, the substance of which is that the Germans agreed to terminate the war uh, and in, in large measure to demobilize um, in return for a promise of a ceasefire and of a peace based on American principles. American principles being what had been set out by the American President Woodrow Wilson in a series of speeches in 1918, the most best known of which is, is the so-called 14 points speech, um, which January the 8th, 1918. Um, and before the armistice was signed and went into effect, 
Wilson got agreement in principle to that, not only from the Germans and the Germans' partners, but also from his own side, um, even though the French and British um, and Italians and Japanese all had considerable reservations about the 14 points. But it's, it's all put together at the end of the war in November 1918 on the basis of this so-called armistice contract. Um, and that, that's an essential part of understanding why the peace conference itself takes the form that it does. We had an interesting question that came in from um, Ado Muhammad on Facebook. And he asked, what was it like having so many world leaders in Paris together for all this time? The atmosphere is well captured in Margaret Macmillan's book called Peacemakers. It was, it was like, a, in some ways, it was like a G8 but a G8 going on for six months. It was, it was enormous. It was a huge media event. And we have quite a lot of recordings of the... We have a lot of photographs, of course. We have film recording. Um, there was a, it was all over the newspapers. So there's a huge core of journalists who, was, who were hovering around the conference sessions in Paris. And the, the early sessions of the conference were mainly in public. Um, but later on, the conference, the key, key decision-making bodies met in secret. But it was a huge media event, and um, a large number of world leaders were present, um, including the most particular attention was given to the American president, Woodrow Wilson. This is the first time an American president in office had actually left the shores of the United States. Um, But obviously the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, is there, and obviously the French leaders, and the Italian Prime Minister, uh, Vittorio Orlando. And the delegations, the peace conference delegations, many of them were huge. The American one was over 100. The British one was also very big. Um, Other countries were much smaller. But there was obviously a very important social side, if you like. It was Paris, after all. So there was a lot of, there was dancing, there was whining, there were visits out to the countryside around Paris. Um, And because there were so many allied leaders and powerful men there for so long, um, and unable to go back home, of course. They, they couldn't Skype home at that stage, and they, they couldn't get on an aeroplane and get back to the United States in eight hours. They had to go on a ship. So they were, in effect, they were marooned there, though Wilson does go back for a month in February to March of 1919. Um, but they were able to act in some ways as a kind of world government. They were making executive decisions about the problems that the world was facing at a very turbulent time, as well as, if you like, acting as legislators and drawing up the peace treaties. So they're having to decide what to do about near starvation conditions in Germany and large parts of Europe, um, about the Russian civil war, uh, and so on. So I think that that, that gives you some, some idea of the, the huge size and complexity of this event. Now, Liam T. Nielsen on Instagram he got in touch with the question, what did each country want from the conference? And I suppose this is one of the absolutely crucial factors in the Paris Peace Conference, the competing demands of the different powers. Well, it is, and it's it's a complex question. It takes a while to answer, but I'll do my best. And I think think I'd start with the Americans and what I mentioned earlier on about the armistice contract and Woodrow Wilson having set out an American peace programme publicly in the 14 points. So Wilson's point of view was that that American peace program had essentially been accepted with a couple of reservations, and therefore the task of the peace conference was to proceed on that basis and to draw up a peace treaty with Germany and then other treaties with the other smaller countries on the enemy side. The Americans didn't have much to claim, if you like, directly for themselves. They didn't want territory. Um, They didn't have substantial economic claims, so they did have views about what the economic peace settlement should look like. The most important of the 14 points from Wilson's perspective was the 14th, which is the League of Nations. And he puts that as the first item on the agenda and insists that the covenant of the League of Nations is agreed before anything else. 
Beyond that, I think he viewed the United States as being, if you like, disinterested, and its job would be to kind of mediate or arbitrate between the competing claims put forward by its partners. But if they had any preference, among the principles that they tended to follow was respect for treaties um, and also respect for self-determination. Though you have to be a bit careful about this, because Wilson never actually used the phrase national self-determination, and he, he didn't understand by it exactly what's usually thought now. It's a bit ambiguous to say the Americans were in favour of national self-determination. That's not really quite right. Um, economically, the American preference was for decontrol, for breaking up the system of wartime rationing and, uh, and controls over trade and so on, move back towards free, freer trade and um, do that quickly. And the Germans, well, there was, of course, a big dispute about what was to do about Germany. Wilson was torn between a punitive approach, a view that the Germans had transgressed and should be punished, but beyond that, that they should be rehabilitated. So that's the American side. Um, the, the British did have claims of their own, of course. They had important objectives in the Middle East. They wanted to control Palestine and what's now Iraq. Um, they wanted Germany to lose all its colonies and to be stripped of its navy or most of its navy so that Germany couldn't be a threat to Britain's extra-European imperial and naval interests once again. Within Europe, the British immediate concern was Belgium, which of course was the issue on which technically Britain had gone to war in 1914. They wanted to restore Belgium to neutrality and independence and so on. Um, beyond that, um, balance of power considerations play quite an important part. The British wanted Germany to be weakened and its behaviour to be changed and Germany to be to like made powerless so it couldn't do something like this again. Uh, but they didn't want France to become too strong. Um, so there was a kind of balancing act that would turned out to be very difficult. The British weren't sure how, to, how they were going to do it. The British also have a preference for self-determination, at least within Europe, not outside. The French are the... We'll probably come back to the French, but the, the, the French are much misunderstood and I think have been much more charitably written about in recent years since the French archives were opened up. The French primary concern was certainly security against a new German attack. There is an element of vengeance and retribution for the defeat of 1870 in the Franco-Prussian War. That's there, and it's talked about. Um, but I think the starting point was that they wanted to be, protect themselves against a, a repeat of the German invasion of 1914 and earlier on the Prussian invasion of 1870. Um, and that means they wanted just Germany to be disarmed. They wanted buffer states in the Rhineland. Uh, they wanted a Rhine frontier for French military occupation. It was important to them to get economic gains to get reparations, which was actually important for the British as well, and I should have mentioned that. But French also had objectives in the Middle East, they should add, particularly Syria and Lebanon. Once you get away from the big three, we'll probably come up to this in subsequent questions, but the, the, the objectives are more limited. Um, they're more regional, if you like. So the Italians have important objectives in the Adriatic, which they've been promised in 1915. The, it, the Japanese had important uh, objectives in East Asia and in the Asia-Pacific region. But the Brazilians are particularly concerned about having a representation on the League of Nations. China, of which of course have been in the First World War as, an ally, as now on the Allied side, this is often forgotten, the Chinese had important objectives which essentially ran counter to those of Japan. So there's a Japanese-Chinese standoff at the peace conference. Um, Belgium had important objectives in the northwest of Europe, um, particularly against the Netherlands, actually, as well as against Germany. Um, so there's a whole series of smaller countries with their objectives, and of also, of course, people at the peace conference who were not from any national delegation, but were representing, for example, the Vietnamese national independence movement, Ho Chi Minh. He, he was at the peace conference and presented the um, 
uh, was what part of a group who presented a demand for an independent Vietnam. So that there were, there, I mean, we'll probably come into this in subsequent questions, but that you can see from the outset that there's a lot of potential contradiction between the British, French and American objectives. And it turned out to be very, very hard to reach an accommodation between them. Now, sticking with the American side of things, uh, Shane Bat on Instagram had a question about Woodrow Wilson. And he asked, is it true that President Wilson contracted and nearly died of Spanish influenza and that his lack of health affected the outcome of the negotiations? The Spanish flu, of course, is something that historians have been much more interested in um, since, since, the, since the COVID pandemic. There's a lot, lot of good work being done on it. Several people at the Paris Peace Conference actually, actually had the, the flu. Lloyd George did at the end of late 1918. Um, Wilson had a serious attack of it in the spring of 1919. Whether he nearly died of it, I don't know whether how much of it is actually due to the flu, and that's something which has been discussed, really, been debated, because Wilson was, was in poor health already. He was suffering from mini-strokes. He's a man well into his 60s who went into political life late, actually, into, in his 50s, and was not, not particularly a personality well-equipped to cope with stress and was now having to face an enormous amount of stress. He overcame the flu in the spring of 1919. Um, his Colonel House, who was Wilson's most important advisor at the beginning of the conference, also suffered a bad attack of the flu. Um, that may have affected the House-Wilson relationship because there, there was a breach between the two halfway through the conference and thereafter House was essentially out of Wilson's favour. Some historians have argued that the bout of flu which Wilson suffered at the beginning of 1919 made him more vulnerable to the stroke which happened in October 1919 at the end of the peace, after the peace conference and uh, did disable him essentially for the rest of his presidency very badly and uh, made it much harder for him to get the Peace Treaty of Versailles ratified by the American Senate. It had been very difficult anyway, um, but it was made more difficult by, Will, by Wilson's um, stroke and, very, and bad health in the final years, final time of his presidency. Now, looking at the treaties themselves, Hannah Laura Ridgely on Instagram wrote in to ask which countries were partitioned. The, the obvious first example is Austria-Hungary. Um, which had been uh, one of the European six great powers and it occupied a large part of cent Central and Southeastern Europe before 1914 and had been very much the, at the heart of the events that had led to the outbreak of war in the first place. What's important to understand is that Austria-Hungary had actually broken up at the end of 1918, in late October and early November 1918. By the time the peace conference convenes, there are separate delegations for Austria and Hungary, which are the two successor states of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire. But between them represent less than half of the population of that empire, which had had more than 50 million people. The rest of it had fractured off into different directions. So part becomes the new state of Czechoslovakia, part enters the new state of Yugoslavia, part enters the new state of Poland. Um, other portions of it are attached to Italy and to Romania. So it goes shatters, if you like, to several different directions. And it's not really feasible for the peace conference to, to, to stitch it together again, and that was never, never considered as an option. The Ottoman Empire, Ottoman Turkey, is also partitioned, and um, this is more a result of decisions taken at the peace conference, which, or, to be precise, there's, a, there's actually a follow-up to the peace conference um, at San Remo in 1920. The San Remo conference meets, and that decides the allocation of so-called mandates um, in the Middle East the, and the Arab lands of the former Ottoman-Turkish rule. Um, and the man mandates means that they are administered by members of the Allied coalition under the nominal supervision of the League of Nations. And the 
the key the key point to make is that the French get mandates in Syria and the Lebanon, and the British get mandates in what's now Iraq, um, Israel, and uh, Jordan. Um, so that the, the Ottoman Empire is is partitioned, if you like, as a result of the peace process. The Austro-Hungarian Empire had broken up before the peace conference meets. Obviously. Both Germany, as we've already seen, Germany loses substantial amounts of territory as a result of the peace conference decision. So you can argue that that's not really a partition because um, Germany loses about an eighth of its of its territorial area and population. Russia had already lost important parts of its western and southern territories, the mainly ethnically non-Russian. Have Ukraine, for example, independent Ukraine is established in 1918 under, with German backing. Uh, that's all done also before the peace conference meets, and the peace conference doesn't try to undo the results of that process. That when the Soviet regime gets control of the whole of Russia in 1921, then it's able to also push back and to re-establish control over some of the areas that have been lost. So looking specifically at the case of Germany, Samuel A. Mills on Instagram asked, did Germany get a say in the outcome at all in the Treaty of Versailles? One of the reasons why the treaty was so unpopular in Germany was that it was described as a diktat, uh, or di- dictated peace, um, that the Germans had basically been asked to sign on the dotted line, um, in contrast with the French, who had been, in, 19, in 1814, 1815, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the royalist government that replaces Napoleon Bonaparte is actually brought into the Congress of Vienna and is able to negotiate to some extent as an equal partner. The Germans are kept away from the conference in its, if, of Paris in its opening phases during the discussion of the League of Nations in January and February, and then when the Treaty of Versailles is being drawn up and drafted, which is potentially mostly done between March and May. So when the German delegation arrive, they are presented with a complete draft treaty on the 7th of May. They are given the opportunity to make representations and object in writing, which they do. a, A huge German memorandum is presented setting out their objections to the Treaty of Versailles. Is any account taken of that something? The British in particular press for the treaty to be revised on the grounds that it's too harsh. The most important outcome of the process that happened that follows in May and June is that there's an agreement for a plebiscite in Upper Silesia, which may sound technical, but Upper Silesia was quite an important coal field and industrial region on the borderland area between eastern Germany and western Poland. The result of the plebiscite, which is how it takes place in 1921, uh, is that Upper Silesia is actually partitioned between Germany and Poland, whereas previously the proposal had been that it should all go to Poland. There are also some changes, technical changes, to the arrangements for the Allied administration of the occupied territories in the Rhineland in Western Germany. So it's not true that no concessions are made to Germany. The Upper Silesian plebiscite is a substantial concession, um, but but most of the peace treaty of Versailles is imposed on Germany in the form that the Allies had uh, established amongst themselves between March and May, even though a, a lot of those terms are very objectionable from the German perspective. So, yeah, actually on those terms, as well as the territorial concessions, what else did Germany have to give up due to the Treaty of Versailles? Well, the Germans had to accept the economic clauses, the, rep- the most important of which were reparations, though actually reparations isn't the only economic provision then that's, in effect, the Germans are asked to sign a blank check with reparations because the Allies couldn't agree on what this figure that was owing was. Um, The British in particular wanted a higher reparations total than did either the French or the Americans. And so what happens is that the 
treaty sets out the categories of damage for which reparations, financial compensation will be demanded, but leaves the actual figure to be decided by a body called the Reparation Commission, which is to be decided by the 1st of May 1921. And it did, in fact, produce in May 1921 the figure of 132,000 million gold marks, gold marks meaning pre-1914 marks, um, which is a large figure. We may have a discussion about that, but it's it's a large figure. But recent writing on this has tried to put it in some kind of perspective and suggests it represented about 7% of German GDP. So in other words, it's, it's a very substantial financial burden um, and one that will continue for a very long time because no time limit is set in the treaty, um, but it's arguably not Im- impossible for the Germans to pay that. That would have a huge impact on German living standards and particularly on the German government finances. So reparations are the key thing, I think, the most objectionable thing apart from the territorial settlement. Reparations are also objectionable because of Article 231, which is the opening clause of the reparations section of the peace treaty, which is the so-called um, war guilt clause. And it's called the war guilt clause because it justifies the demand for financial compensation from the Germans and their partners, because it argues the war has been imposed on the Allied and associated powers by the aggression of Germany and its partners. So it squarely places the blame for the war, the responsibility for the war, on the Germans and on the central powers. Um, That was strongly objectionable. That's one of the things that the German delegation find hardest to accept. Um, So we've mentioned territory, we've mentioned reparations, we've mentioned the war guilt clause. Um, I'll mention two more things. One is the... um, the trial of war criminals, um, that there is a, Article 227 provides for the trial of war criminals in Germany, um, including the German, former German emperor, Wilhelm II. And a, again, that was something which the German Reichstag parliament and the German delegation found it very, very difficult to accept. The other thing is the allied occupation of the Rhineland, which strictly speaking is not a territorial provision because it's a temporary thing. The Allies are going to occupy the west bank of the River Rhine and bridgeheads on the east bank of the River Rhine for up to 15 years, which will get you to about 1935, with a possible extension or possibly ending earlier. And in fact, it did end early. It ended in 1930. Um, But that is also deeply resented on the German side, that their western provinces, about five and a half million people, are under um, Allied occupation for a decade or more. Um, On the other hand, the Germans didn't object particularly to disarmament. This wasn't something that the German delegation made a great issue of, though Germany was disarmed, if you like, unilaterally, because the the Allies said they would disarm once the Germans had done. Um, But that's something which they, uh, well, they they did do, actually, but they they weren't obliged to do under the treaty. And just on a point you made earlier, um, Kaiser Wilhelm never did face trial, did he? No, he didn't, no. He 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 went into exile in Holland. After the German Revolution of, 9th of November 1918, and the old, the old imperial government of Germany is overthrown and re- replaced by what becomes the Weimar Republic. Um, but Wilhelm goes into exile in, in the Netherlands. And uh, the Allied governments, of course, did press for the Netherlands to hand Wilhelm II over, but the, the, the Dutch didn't. And so he stays there until his death in 1941. So he, he, he sees, of course, Hitler and the German triumphs of 1940 at the end of his life. And following on from this, Stephen T. Daly on Instagram wanted to know, did any Allied voices say that the impositions against Germany were going too far? Particularly in Britain, though, there was a backlash within the British delegation. After the treaty-making process was completed and the draft treaty was finalised in May, 
many people within the British delegation thought that it had been put together, if you like, in a series of commissions and subcommissions without any kind of overview, and that the overall package was much too harsh and much too severe. Now, among the people who was sympathetic to this view is is the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, um, who already during the peace conference, he'd actually retreated with some of his top advisors to Fontainebleau outside Paris in March of 1919, produced something called the the Fontainebleau Memorandum, arguing that the treaty is shaping up into harsh reform and needs to be um, scaled down, the demands made on Germany. Or he's warning there'll be continuing chaos and Bolshevism in Germany. The French retaliated against that, I think, with some justice by saying what the British were proposing was that everybody should make concessions except them. But the British were not scaling down their financial demands or their colonial demands on Germany. What they were asking for was for the French and uh, other countries, particularly the Poles, to scale down their territorial demands on Germany and Europe. So I think there is a bit of um, one-sidedness, if you like, in the British approach to this, but it's primarily from the British delegation that the pressure for revision comes. And that happened at the time. And uh, later on, of course, soon after the peace treaty, J.M. Keynes, who John Maynard Keynes, the economist, who'd been on the British delegation and resigns because he doesn't like the form the treaty is taking. Um, but at, later in 1919, he issues his bestseller, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which is a very powerful indictment of the treaty and arguing that it's unjust and unworkable and will lead to disaster. So there is a lot of pressure from within the British delegation, much less within the American delegation, though some of the experts in the American side agreed with the British. And obviously, from the French point of view, in anything within France, the pressure was for the treaty to be harshened, that it wasn't tough enough. That that was the problem that Georges Clemenceau, the French prime minister, faced when he was trying to get the treaty ratified by the French parliament, though though he, he did get it ratified. And then conversely, Andrea H. on Instagram submitted this question, Has the narrative that the Treaty of Versailles was overly harsh been overplayed? How proportional in comparison to similar treaties, such as the Brest-Litov Treaty, was it viewed at the time? Uh, It wasn't as harsh as the Brest-Litov Treaty, which is the treaty that the Germans and their partners, the Austrians, imposed on on Soviet Russia in March of 1918. Don't forget that in in Eastern Europe, the Germans and Austrians actually won the war. They, they, They defeated the Russian Empire and the old Tsarist Russian regime was overthrown. So they signed a peace treaty, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with the Bolsheviks in March of 1918. Um, This involved about one third of European Russian territory being handed over, Um, not annexed by Austria and Germany, but turned into buffer states under German and Austrian control. For example, in the Ukraine, which we've already mentioned, in Poland, um, the Baltic states, what's now Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, and down in the Caucasus region as well, in Georgia. Um, and so not, not only was a large amount of territory handed over, but so were Russia's, many of Russia's richest agricultural lands in the Ukraine um, and its, its, coal, its coal-producing areas and uh, its most important oil field in Baku. So that, that was actually, whether you look at it economically or demographically, that was a harsher settlement than was imposed on Germany in 1919. And there were also substantial reparations imposed on Russia, but they weren't called reparations. That that treaty remain, remains in force until the, essentially it's overthrown by the Bolshevik victory in the Russian Civil War, and that the Allies intervened in Russia after the war, but uh, but, but in the end the, the intervention was abandoned. The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk's terms were public; they were well known. There was another very harsh treaty signed by the Central Powers with Romania, the Treaty of Bucharest in May of 1918, which places the Romanian oil fields and much of their um, cereal production, their cereal harvest, under the control of the Central Powers. 
these precedents were public, they were well known about, and they were used by Allied spokespersons to, to say that the, the Treaty of Versailles terms were not actually all that harsh in comparison, comparative perspective. The other question was, was the more general question was whether the harshness of the Treaty of Versailles has been overstated. In recent years, I'd say since the opening of the French archives, that was the turning point really in the 1980s and 1990s, but in recent years there has been a strong tendency in the literature to, if you like, come to the defence of the treaty and in particular to come to the defence and understanding of the French role in the treaty, to see the French role as more justified and more constructive than used to be thought. Some have even argued that what the French were aiming for was a kind of partnership with Germany, as was they eventually achieved you know, with European integration after 1950. Um, that, I think, pushes it too far, though that there was some thinking of that kind in the French government, that partnership with Germany might be a better way of controlling Germany rather than keeping it down. What the French were really looking for, though, I think, was, was a strong partnership with Britain and America, and if they got secure British and American guarantees of French security and they got British and American economic aid, then they wouldn't have pressed so hard on weakening Germany. And I think that there, there is truth in that analysis of the, of the peace treaty. That Part of the problem with the peace treaty is that the British and Americans are not willing to give the French the kind of assurances of security that the French are looking for. And that helps to explain French conduct in the peace negotiations. What I think about the treaty is, in a way, the, the old argument is, was it too harsh or was it too soft? I think this, in a way, misses the point. Once you get into the detail of the treaty and read the clauses carefully, you see that it's actually much more flexible than is commonly supposed. For example, I've mentioned that the Rhineland occupation could be either prolonged beyond 15 years or shortened to less than 15 years, depending on Germany's compliance with it. So in other words, if the Germans behave themselves, putting it from the Allied perspective, then the treaty could be moderated. And Woodrow Wilson was particularly concerned to give a large role in the treaty to the League of Nations. The League of Nations could have a revising role and make it more moderate if the Germans became, if you like, a reliable partner of the Western, of Western Atlantic democracies. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so there's enough in the treaty to make it impossible for Germany to start another European war. Hitler is aware of that, when he becomes German Chancellor in 1933, he doubts if Germany can even race face war against Poland, let alone against Britain or France or, or Soviet Russia. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Now, looking beyond Germany, Thomas Kendall on Instagram had a question on the Treaty of Trianon, and he writes, It seems like Hungary was disproportionately punished compared to other Central Powers nations. Why was this? I'm not sure that it's true. It's, it's treated more harshly than Germany. It's not treated as harshly as Ottoman Turkey under the Treaty of Serre in 1920. It's treated on about on a par with um, Austria under the Treaty of Saint-Germain. Um, it is probably treated more harshly than Bulgaria under the Treaty of Neue. So it's sort of in the middle, really. The basic point, as I mentioned earlier on, is that Hungary had been part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire before 1914. And the Hungarian half of the empire, um, what happens at the end of 1918 is that the, the non-Magyar parts of it break away or are taken away. So the Czechs, for example, overrun Slovakia which had been part of the Hungarian half of the empire before 1914. The Romanians, and these are the really important thing, is the, the Romanians come in from the east, 
um, and the, the, the Croats join the new state of, um, of Yugoslavia. Um, most of the areas that break away are not Magyar speakers, though there are important Magyar ethnic and linguistic minorities within them. About three million Magyars, Hungarian-speaking people, end up outside the small state of Hungary that emerges. That small state of Hungary is obliged to pay reparations and is obliged to disarm, but this is something, these are provisions that are common for all of the central powers, and it's not treated particularly harshly from those points of view. But it looks harsh because of the dramatic reduction of pre-1914 Hungarian half of the Austro-Hungarian Empire to the small and impoverished state of Hungary that emerges in Central Europe with no sea frontier, frontier for example, um, in 1918. Um, much of that's happened before the peace conference meets. But during the peace conference, there is a crisis between Hungary and Romania, in the course of which the Allies on the whole back Romania, um, which had been fought on the Allied side in the latter part of the First World War. Um, but they don't, do, do, they don't support the maximum Romanian demands, but the Romanians push up and expand at the expense of the eastern territories of Hungary. Partly because of that, something I should finally mention is that there, there is a revolution, there's a communist revolution in, um, in Budapest in March of 1919. Michel Karolyi, who had been, a, if you like, a pro-allied, pro-Western leader, resigns and is replaced by Bela Kun, who leads a communist government, calls for an alliance with the Soviet Union, tries to expel the Romanians, but fails. In the, in the end, the Romanians overthrow the Bela Kun regime. Partly because of that, Hungary is treated, I think the treatment of Hungary is toughened up because there is a communist revolution there. But that's not the main reason why Hungary loses so much territory. Now, we had a question um, from Felicity Kate on Facebook who says, I would like to know a little bit more about the racial equality clause proposal and why it was rejected. Well, this is a clause proposed by the Japanese, um, who, remember, uh, had, of course, fought on the Allied side in the First World War. And um, the Allied, the Japanese are one of the five principal Allied and associated powers, um, along with Britain and uh, America, uh, Italy and France. Um, but the, the Japanese propose a rather bland text, really, but call, calling for equal non-discrimination on grounds of nationality and ethnicity. If you, if you read it, it's only quite short and it's quite difficult to work out what, what actually the Japanese, why they attach such importance to it. But they wanted it put into the covenant of the League of Nations, into the, I think, into the Declaration of Principles in the preamble. Um, this is rejected in the League of Nations Commission. Um, some countries vote in favour of it, but a majority vote against Britain and America abstain, but Woodrow Wilson, who is the um, chair of the League of Nations Commission, rules that because there isn't unanimity, they won't proceed with it. What the Japanese were doing, I think they were partly, it's partly a prestige thing, that the Japanese had, of course, been trying to modernise their country and put them on an equal footing with the Western great powers, reacting against the treatment of the Asian, East Asia by the European countries during the 19th century. Um, they were particularly concerned about the wanting to expand the scope for Japanese emigration and for equal treatment of Japanese migrants in countries such as Australia and in the United States, particularly California, where there had been substantial Japanese emigration before 1914. They'd also gone into Canada, into, into British Columbia. Um, that's also the reason why the racial equality clause is, is rejected. And the, the, the most intransigent opposition comes from Australia, from the Australian Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, who's emphatically and consistently against it, 
um, because he thinks it would make it harder for the, for the Australians to, to regulate the control of immigration into Australia and preserve a kind of white Australia policy. Um, the other place where, as I say, there's been a lot of tension is California, um, where there's a, a good deal of resentment of Japanese businesses and Japanese immigrants buying up agricultural land. And Wilson was afraid, Woodrow Wilson was afraid, it's going to be difficult to get the peace treaty and the League of Nations through the Senate for all sorts of reasons, but one being there would be more opposition in the Senate if there was a, a racial equality clause built into the treaty. Um, so the, the British and American leaders, I think Lloyd George, if he'd been left to him, might have been willing to accept some version of the racial equality clause, but doesn't feel he can overrule Australian opposition. And Woodrow Wilson and Colonel House don't feel that they can ignore the potential for opposition in the Senate, which will make it harder to get, get the treaty ratified. So the racial equality clause doesn't really progress any further. And then following on from that point, Mamorsky920 on Instagram wanted to know, why were the Japanese treated so poorly? And again, we'd have to check whether the Japanese were treated poorly. They were treated poorly in the sense that the racial equality clause was rejected. Apart from that, they were given control of the North Pacific Islands, um, Marianas, Carolines, Marshalls, uh, as a mandate. Um, and I've mentioned, I think, the mandate system already. The, the, the former German colonial possessions were parcelled out amongst the victorious countries. And they, the Japanese got the North Pacific Islands, which they wanted. What they really wanted was to be able to fortify those islands, and that was not allowed because it was a sea mandate which had to remain demilitarised. But the, the real issue that the Japanese were concerned about was Shandong, which is a province in northern China. It, it sticks out into the um, East China Sea. It's close to Beijing. Uh, it's strategically important. It's also uh, sentimentally important. It's the birthplace of Confucius. It has a great deal of importance in Chinese religion and culture, as well as Chinese strategy. Before 1914, the Germans had been the predominant power there. They'd had a long lease on Kaochao and the railway running into the interior. During the war, one of the reasons why the Japanese came into the war was on the Allied side was to get control of that, and they, they, they did. In 1914, Japanese expedition goes into Shandong and defeats the Germans. So the Japanese end up at the end of the war in occupation and control of Shandong, which the Chinese, of course, wanted to be back to China. And the real losers at the Paris Peace Conference are the Chinese delegation, who actually walk out and refuse to sign the treaty, because the Allied powers do not overrule Japan's claims to stay in Shandong, but say it's a matter to be left for negotiation between the Japanese and the Chinese which means that the Japanese will stay because they have a much stronger military and diplomatic capability than the Chinese do. So I think the, um, Woodrow Wilson was deeply upset by that, but he was isolated in his opposition to the Japanese because the British and French and Italians had all made secret treaties during the war promising to back the Japanese claims. So the Japanese do get control of Shandong. And this, this has caused deep resentment in China and of course is outrage in China, something called the 4th of May movement, May 4th movement, May the 4th, 1919, is a nationalist movement among Chinese students um, that's still commemorated by the Chinese Communist Party today as a very important staging post in the development of Chinese nationalism and independence movements. So, sorry, this is a long-winded answer, but it's important for understanding what there is a major continuing legacy of the peace conference in worsening relations between Japan and China in East Asia. Now, we mentioned him earlier, but we had a question from Amy Elizabeth on Twitter, and she asked about Ho Chi Minh and what he did at the Paris Peace Conference. Well, Ho Chi Minh had been born in Vietnam and uh, goes abroad after 1911, travels the world, um, 
working as a ship's cook and all, all sorts of things. Goes to New York, goes to London, and goes to Paris. Not quite clear when he came to Paris. Some suggestions 1917, some suggestions even June 1919. The documentary record is very scanty. But he was in Paris for all or part of the peace conference period and belonged to a Vietnamese patriotic group of Vietnamese exiles living in Paris. Member, of course, the whole of Indochina is a French colony after the 1880s. Um, Indo- that's Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. Um, but this group that Ho Chi Minh belonged to wanted, wanted Vietnamese independence and they sent a letter to the peace conference leaders, to, to Wilson and Lloyd George and the other leaders, which was ignored. There was no response to it. Um, and after uh, late, later on, um, Ho Chi Minh stayed in France for several more years, became a founding member of the French Communist Party in 1920, um, and then went uh, on to Russia, to Moscow in 1923, then eventually came back, back to Vietnam, of course, and played his role in, as, as, as the leader of the Vietnamese independence movement after the Second World War. So that, that, that's the situation. He, he was in Paris. It was a stage of journeying overseas, um, important formative experience for him as a young man. And he was already very closely associated with demands of Vietnamese independence, but also for a kind of socialist, communist economic programme. Now, Afzal Sheikh on Facebook has got in touch with this question. Could the post-imperial legacy of the decisions made in 1919 have been avoided with more regard given to the nascent independent movements arising out of the empires who were engaged in the talks? There, there weren't significant independence movements in Germany's former African colonies, which, which are parceled up and mostly go to the British and French. So the Belgians also get some, and in East Asia, the Japanese get some. In the Middle East and the, the former possessions of the Ottoman Empire, which defeated, of course, in 1918, the conference made one attempt to sound out opinion among the populations there. This is something called the King Crane Commission, who are two Americans, not experts on the region, but they're sent out at Woodrow Wilson's insistence, and the British and French reluctantly go along with this. Um, the King, King and Crane arrive in the Middle East, and they, they make re-recommendations. Um, num- number one, they say that Syria should not go to the French, having consulted with the local representatives of opinion there. Obviously, they can't do opinion polls, so this is kind of impressionistic. But they go out and talk, talk to the local dignitaries. Number one, Syria should not be French. Number two, there's strong Arab opposition to unrestricted Jewish immigration into Palestine. Um, number three, that there is less opposition to the principle of Iraq becoming a British mandate. Now, if you look at what actually happens at the San Remo conference in 1920, Iraq does become a British mandate. Uh, and so the, what's now Iraq takes its shape as a political entity as a result of the peace conference decisions with the um, Shia in the south around Basra, the Sunnis in the middle around Baghdad and the Kurds in the north around Mosul. Um, that's, that's a peace conference creation, becomes a British mandate until 1932. Secondly, um, the British become the mandatory power in Palestine, that's now Israel and the West Bank. Um, and uh, in that area, that one of the conditions of the British getting the mandate is that there should be unrestricted Jewish immigration. This is following on from the commitment that the British had made to the Zionist movement in this so-called Balfour Declaration of November 1917. So if you like, uh, opinion on the ground from the Palestinian Arab population is, is disregarded in that sense. And Syria does become a French mandate even though there's a rebellion against French control of Syria, which the French are able to put down. 
So you can argue, if you like, that the decisions taken at San Remo don't really reflect very much what the peace conference's own attempt to sound out local opinion had. Now, I realise they don't... um... They weren't participants at the conference. But how far does Soviet Russia cast a shadow over the Paris Peace Conference? There's a big discussion about Soviet Russia. And uh, because, in a way, they're trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle with a major piece missing. Um, and they're very aware of this. And so one, one of the early things that they tried to do, uh, they, they, when I say they, they, the Allied leaders, they um, propose a conference at Prinkipo Island, which is in the Sea of Marmara, you know, between the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles, and this, the, the Whites and the Reds, the two sides in the Russian Civil War, should, should meet and try to hammer out some kind of peace treaty and uh, allied mediation. Uh, the, the Russian Whites re- reject this proposal, um, encouraged by the French to reject it. Um, remember that the Allies are actually intervening in Russia, of course. The uh, French have forces at Odessa, um, the British have, and Americans have forces at Archangel in the north, and also there's British intervention in the... Um, what's now Azerbaijan and the area around the Baku oil fields. Um, And the Japanese, this is the biggest of all the interventions, is the Japanese are intervening near Vladivostok and 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 on the East Pacific coast. Um, So there are allied intervention forces, which in general are backing the whites and also backing the breakaway movements in in Poland and in the Baltic states and so on. Um, So the allies, if you like, are are favouring the Russian whites and the Russian civil war that's been developing since 1918. The Principo Conference is something which is an attempt to produce a peace a, a peace treaty within Russia and then, then establish a Russian government which might perhaps be able to be brought into the peace conference. After its failure, um, there are some further attempts at, at compromise. There's something called the Bullet Mission. There's an American diplomat who goes and meets Lenin and the Russian leaders, comes back with proposals, but he never has a strong mandate from Woodrow Wilson. It becomes clear once he gets back that the, the initiative's got going to lead anywhere. And that there are more plans as time goes on. But by the summer of 1919, it looks as if the whites are actually going to win the civil war or that they're making good military progress and the allies stop trying to mediate between whites and reds. Of course, the whites, that white turn of fortunes does, doesn't last. And in the end, the Bolsheviks win the Russian civil war. But it's, it's very important right through the conference. And it's important particularly for explaining French behavior. Remember, this cornerstone of French security policy against Germany before 1914 had been the Russian alliance dating back to 1894 with Tsarist Russia. That, that's gone. And the French do make alliance treaties with Poland soon after the war and with Romania and Czechoslovakia, but it's not a substitute for a great power alliance containing Germany in the east, which is what they'd had before 1914. So this is one of the fundamental reasons why the French continue to be feel insecure. And everybody is very afraid, of course, of Bolshevism spreading into Central Europe. In particular, there's a fear that Bolshevism will spread into Germany. Um, and there is there's a communist uprising in Bavaria. Not March 1919, a communist government is briefly established in Munich. There's also, we've already mentioned, a communist government in um, Hungary, uh, in Budapest, again in March of 1919. There's a real fear among Allied leaders, including David Lloyd George, in the spring of of 1919 that Bolshevism will spread westwards and this is one of the reasons why the British urge for moderation in the, in the peace terms with Germany um, though it's not the only reason but the, the, the most practical response that the Allies make is that they decide to lift the blockade of Germany which had been continued after the armistice and food, food supplies are, are rushed into Germany from March 1919 onwards primarily from America. Now perhaps the biggest question that gets asked around this topic is one that it's been sent in by Harriet McClory on Instagram. 
And she says, to what extent did the Paris Peace Conference really cause World War II to start? I think that the first basic point is that the Germany does accept the Treaty of Versailles terms. The Treaty of Versailles terms are largely implemented in the 1920s, and there's enough in them to make it impossible for Germany to start another major war, particularly the disarmament clauses. Those are absolutely crucial. Um, which limit Germany to an army of 100,000 men, no conscription, no air force, no U-boats, no tanks, no poison gas, no general staff, so they can't produce another war plan like the Schlieffen plan. Uh, and that, that's mostly put into effect in the 1920s. In addition, there's an allied occupation of the Rhineland, and the Germans are permanently prevented from garrisoning or fortifying the Rhineland, their western border, so their main industrial area around the Ruhr Essen with its Krupp armaments works and so on, all of that is potentially exposed to, to Allied attack. And so there's enough in the treaty to make it impossible for Germany to start another European war. Hitler is aware of that. When he becomes German Chancellor in 1933, he doubts if Germany can even race face a war against Poland, let alone against Britain or France or, or Soviet Russia. So that's one answer. Yeah, that there's an, the problem is, in other words, that the Treaty of Versailles is not enforced that the disarmament clauses are challenged by the Germans and um, the Germans are, in effect, break out of them in the early 1930s, between 1933 and 1935. And then 1936, Hitler reoccupies the Rhine, remilitarizes the Rhineland. Now, that that's not an altogether complete answer to the question because, of course, the question is why did Hitler come to power in the first place and how far is the Treaty of Versailles responsible for that? It has some responsibility because of the way in which it inflames nationalist movements in Germany. And this is true particularly of the reparations clauses, the territorial losses in the east to Poland, um, and the war guilt clause. These are all things which are deeply resented and make it hard for moderates and pro-governments to establish themselves in Germany that want to cooperate with the West. Having said which, quite a lot of history happens between 1919 and the rise to power of the Nazis in 1930, 29, 30 onwards. One of the reasons why the Nazis are able to break through after 1929 is because of their opposition to the Versailles Treaty, which, which they blame Germany's ills on that. Um, and in particular, the thing that makes is vital is the rapid rise in German unemployment as a result of the impact of the Great Depression spreading from America to Germany from 1930 onwards. The origins of the Great Depression, I think it is difficult to see the American origins of that as being related to the Versailles Treaty. The spread of the Depression to Germany is related to the imbroglio over reparations, and particularly the so-called Dawes Plan and Young Plan, without going into too much detail, but essentially settlement is put together in the late 20s, which is based on American private lending to Germany so that Germany can start to repay reparations. And that American source of private capital and finance to Germany dries up under the impact of the Depression, which is partly why the Depression is so bad in Germany and partly why the um, Nazis are able to seize, are able to expand their support to the point where Hitler is invited to become German Chancellor in 1933. Though this is not just because the Nazis have popular support, it's also because of the elite around President Hindenburg want to bring him in in order to smash the democratic system in Germany. So this is a long-winded answer to the question, but I think what I'm saying is that level, level one answer to this, the problem is the Treaty of Versailles isn't enforced. So we need to look at why that happens, and a, part of, a large part of the responsibility actually lies with Britain. Um, but point, point two, 
one of the reasons why the Nazis come to power is uh, over the long term is the impact of the Versailles Treaty on Germany, but it's not just the Treaty of Versailles that is responsible. And I think I will have to ask you about why the powers, and particularly Britain, lost enthusiasm about the Treaty of Versailles and didn't put the effort in to enforce it. And the British hoped even in 1919 that they wouldn't have a long-term military commitment on the continent of Europe. Um, that's something that very powerfully influences David Lloyd George and the British delegation at the peace conference, that they, they're worried, for example, that they might have to have permanent conscription in Britain, which would be very unpopular. Remember, conscription had been a big and very contentious issue during World War I. They're also worried about the cost. All of the Allied countries, except America and Japan, end the world war with, with huge balance of payments, deficits and budget deficits. So they're worried about the financial costs and the conscription costs and uh, whether the British public will to continue to sustain such a commitment. That's one of the fundamental reasons for the difference between the British and the French, that the French sort of accept that they're going to have to have a long-term commitment to keep Germany weak. That the treaty, the Germans are not going to voluntarily accept the treaty. The, you, you will have to have a continuing element of coercion. The French understand that very well. The British, British don't. So the British perception was that you might be able to moderate the treaty to a point where the Germans could voluntarily accept it. In that case, you wouldn't need to keep, if you like, imposing your will and insisting on the Germans staying disarmed and keep keep troops in the Rhineland and so on. Um, so that's there from 1919, and the, the, the British sort of go along in a compromise, meet some of the French respect demands in 1919. They hope, of course, that the Americans will help. And one of the key issues here is that the Americans retreat back into isolationism that Woodrow Wilson can't get the peace treaty ratified in 1919. America doesn't become a founder member of the League of Nations. American troops withdrawn from the Rhineland in 1924. Um, and the Americans don't give the British and French the economic and financial help the British and French had also been hoping for. So the the Russians, of course, with reasons we've seen, uh, uh, if anything, cooperate with Germany in the 1920s. Um, the Italians and Japanese get antagonized from the Allied leaders at the peace conference. The Americans retreat back into isolationism. This means whether the treaty is going to be enforced depends very largely on Britain and France. And the British, if you like, their heart isn't in it from the beginning. The British, very, very quickly, the view develops in Britain that the problem is the French, that the French are insisting on too harsh demands and this, this is causing a continuing inflammation of German nationalism and making it impossible for Europe to settle down and become stable. Um, so if you like, the French have to make the concessions. That's, that's, I think, is the prevailing influence and view that shapes British foreign policy for much of the 1920s and goes on, of course, in an enhanced form, continued after the end of the Weimar Republic and continues to shape the, and influence British policy in the early mid-years of Hitler's Germany in the early and mid-1930s. And then considering that there was another European war 20 years later and considering subsequent events in the Middle East and East Asia, is it fair to say that the Paris Peace Conference was ultimately a failure? If you take that long-term view, then I think the answer is yes. The, the, the more difficult question is whether it had to be that way. And in recent years, historians have been more sympathetic to the treaty and to the enormous difficulties that the treaty makers faced um, in trying to reconstruct a stable settlement. More difficult, I think, in 1915, sorry, 1919 than it had been a century earlier at the end of the Napoleonic Wars. But, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a question earlier on about the Middle East, which I did, didn't f fully answer, but one can argue that, that many of the tensions that exist in the Middle East now can be traced back to the decisions taken at the San Remo Conference and in the, the aftermath of World War I, including the creation of both Syria and Iraq 
both of which you can argue, and I think this is what the question was getting at, actually, but both of those you can argue are artificial states in some ways that bunch together very different ethnic and religious groups and uh, and are not going to be held together except by very repressive regimes. I'm sorry, I've slightly got away from your question, but I think that if if you pressed me, I'd say that the the one-sentence answer is yes. I mean, the the, the peace conference was, was not a success. And then just finally, did the peacemakers or the Allied powers after 1945 learn any lessons from what had happened with the Paris Peace Conference? They tried to, for example, reparations. After, after 1945, our Soviets were in a similar position to the one that the French had occupied after 1918. The Soviets are the ones who have been invaded and devastated, a huge loss of life. So the Soviets want high reparations to be imposed on Germany after 1946. Um, the Americans... One of the American delegates, American experts, says that this will be like a cow, where the Americans are feeding Germany from the western end and the Russians are milking it from the eastern end. So there's a similar disagreement, actually, between the, 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 the Americans had wanted low reparations after World War I, disagreed with the French about that and with the British. After World War II, again, the French want low reparations. And that, that time round, of course, the, um, there's just simply a breakdown on the whole question of reparations, which is one of the reasons why there is no German peace treaty in 1946 or 1947, that the victorious powers just can't agree on it. What happens instead, and I think here the Americans are learning, if you like, more constructive lessons, is, is, is the Marshall Plan. The, the Marshall Plan provides the sort of aid package that the Dawes Plan and Young Plan in the 1920s had not done. This is from the American state, American federal government. It's not from American private lenders. So it's not dependent on what happens at Wall Street. Um, and it's a huge American reconstruction loan, not only to Germany, but also to Germany's neighbours. So Britain and France and Italy and the Netherlands also, and, and dozen European countries also benefit. So Germany revives, yes, Western Germany revives but um, economically, but so, so do all of the countries around it. So this preserves more of a kind of balance um, between Germany and its partners and helps in the end to lay the, lay the groundwork for French-German reconciliation. I suppose the other thing to say, we don't know the full details of this, but, but the, the key difference after 1945 in many ways is that the Soviets are able to provide on their own the long-term coercion of Germany for 40 years. Uh, until 1989, the Soviets can keep, keep Germany divided, keep it occupied, military forces in the middle of Germany, and Berlin, of course, separated from the rest of Western Germany. Germany, if you like, is kept down and kept weak and impossible for it to start a new war um, until the point where the Germans have actually changed, where the German mentality changes in a way that it never did in the 1920s. And um, we hope permanently um, that situation is created in which there's a stable German, reliable German partner. Um, for both for both the western side and the eastern side, which is one of the reasons why, in the end, Gorbachev feels he can take the risk of allowing Germany to be reunified. That was Professor David Stevenson. His most recent book is 1917, War, Peace and Revolution, which was published by OUP in 2017. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Collins.